Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. I love interviewing people who have done things that I have never done and who have thought things that I have never thought. Today, I have the incredible privilege of interviewing a friend who is very wise, very smart, and I really love this, very skeptical. She's not an argumentative or contentious person, but she is somebody who knows her own mind and sees issues from two, three, four, sometimes five points of view. She's very decisive, but at the same time, she's very discerning. She's not cynical. A cynical person, in my mind, just always kind of knocks things down. Instead, she is skeptical. She takes ideas and she tests them, and then she retests them. She looks for evidence on both sides, three sides, five sides of an issue. This is a rare skill. And on top of that, she's just a highly entertaining, engaging person. So welcome to this episode. Antoinette is a lifelong teacher. She's taught many different kinds of English, speech, debate, and theater. She's helped put out plays, musicals, and concerts. Her debate teams have often come in highly in state competitions. She is also a published author. Check out her stories in Chicken Soup for the Expectant Mother's Soul, Chocolate for a Woman's Heart, Chocolate for a Woman's Blessings, and Swollen Ankles and Blowfish Kisses. Today, we discuss how precise speech, a love of the arts, and a willingness to engage in tough topics with other people will sharpen your mind, increase your mental discipline, ramp up your creativity, and help your heart grow. Hi, Antoinette. Hi, Tim. You have a nickname, which is Ish. Do you mind if I call you Ish? Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. Well, you're a great teacher. You make a huge impact on teenagers and others. I was kind of hoping you'd tell us your secret origin story. What kind of a kid were you? Tim, I was a tomboy. And so I was always curious about different things. While I loved dolls, that wasn't my primary interest. I wanted to play baseball in the street with a predominantly uh, boy neighborhood. And I loved it. I just loved it. So I think getting along in that environment has helped me be who I am today. Okay. And then how were you in high school? Um, in high school, I was very active. I was able to do a lot of things that uh, kids today can't. Uh, I was in debate and I was in drama and I also played volleyball for four years and I was in the musicals, but I was able to do all of that because our school was relatively small and it provided opportunities, like I said, that some kids today don't get. I went to a small school too and it was a 1A school in Iowa. There were 32 kids in my graduating class and it was typical for some people to play four sports a year. They'd play every season and then simultaneously they might go out for a play they might be in swing choir, and they might be doing the yearbook. I mean, people literally had seven different activities going, and maybe weren't all that great at too much of anything, but it was just such an enriching, wonderful experience. Is that kind of what yours was like? It really was. Now, the debate program at that time wasn't as uh, sophisticated as they are today, but I enjoyed it nevertheless, nevertheless, and I enjoyed being able to experience... Uh, different kinds of activities with different people. So if I was playing volleyball, I was with the athletes. If I was in the drama classes and in the musicals, I was able to be with a whole other group, group, group of kids. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. Yeah, the, uh, the diversity of just behavior and types of people is just fantastic when a person's able to do that. I just absolutely agree. Um, then came college. How did college change you as a person? Well, when I went to college, my, I was planning to be a, a dental hygienist, and when I got there, I loved it. I played volleyball. I was on a scholarship, and, uh, but my head turned, and one of the musicals I was in, I was playing opposite of who is now my husband, Phil, and he went away to the University of Arkansas, and again, I was in town, and eventually, he decided to move back up here. And I switched schools to be with him, and we got married in our junior year. So, well, at the end of our junior year. 
So we faced senior year together in college, and I think that was probably the biggest life change because I was going from an independent to now in a relationship, married, and, and, and I actually changed majors at that point, and that was now to teaching. Oh my gosh, your whole life just turned completely sideways when you were 21 years old. Correct. I didn't even really know that about you. Um, would you advise other people to get married at the age of 21? Um, I think it depends on the person. You know, it's, it's difficult to be married no matter how old you are, no matter when you get married. I think it all boils down to the commitment that uh, each takes, whether it's at 30 or at 20. Uh, I think that's, I think that at the end of the day, that's what's important. Commitment. It's a commitment. It just boils down to commitment. Commitment. Okay. Okay. And you've been happily married for several decades. Correct. Okay. Okay. And how many children do you have? Three boys. Oh, wow. Okay. So that just sounds very, very energetic, very active. What was that like raising three boys? Well, since I was a tomboy, it was great because I was able to get in there and help coach uh, their baseball teams. I was a scout leader. I, get, I had given up uh, teaching for a while because I wanted to be home and raise the kids. So I had plenty of time to be a part of the Italian festivals. And my boys danced in, uh, and I did the choreography in those festivals. So it was, it was still teaching, but it was a little more intimate because you know, I dearly loved the, the people I was teaching at that time. That sounds pretty awesome. You just sound like a very, I guess, community-focused, uh, outdoorsy, active mom. Correct. Okay. That's just really, really, really awesome. Um, okay. So then you got back into teaching. Uh, how did you get back into teaching and what did you teach? Well, when I started, before we had kids, uh, I was a second grade teacher at Holy Cross in Kansas City, Missouri. And loved it, loved it, loved it. Well, the junior high teacher left and the principal at the time, who was a sister, had encouraged me to move to seventh grade and teach them because that was a hard year to fill. And it was only my second year, and I thought, why not? So I moved to junior high, taught seventh and eighth grade, and I loved that. It was great. So about a couple years after, I um, started my family. We started a family, and that's when I left teaching until I returned 12 years later to uh, St. Bernadette's. Okay, so can you, this, this is sometimes tough to do, can you rattle off all of the different classes that you've taught? For example, I don't know, in English 1, English 2, etc. Oh, I can make this easy. I taught second grade and then I taught fifth through college. I had uh, a time in there where I was teaching teachers during the summer and I've taught English on the high school level. I've taught freshmen, and seniors, creative writing to all four, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, and have been involved with, you know, the Academy Inc. and various other um, activities that I actually participated in when I was in high school. What is Academy Inc.? Academy Inc. is a literature magazine and art as well that we publish every year in the spring, and it focuses on the talents of our St. James Academy students. Okay, well, let's get to debate and literature. What attracts you to debate and to literature? Well, I think debate is survival, especially if you recognize the times we are in now. I think it's very important that kids develop uh, the ability to critical think. Mm. And whether I'm teaching literature or I'm teaching debate, both need to be, uh, the emphasis needs to be on that critical thinking. The sad part is um, young people are exposed to a lot of different points of view. And what I tell them, whether it's debate or English, is I'm here to tell them to think, not how to think. And the, I think that's important because when they go out into the real world, you know, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or it's a college professor, they're going to be inundated with a lot of points of view and they need to process all of it and believe in, doesn't matter what it is, but they have to know why they believe it. They have to be able to support it, 
not because my teacher said so, not because my boyfriend is a Democrat or Republican. It has to be, I am this because, and then be able to rationally support it, to show that there's been some thought. I feel like that's just really hard for people to do. So I taught college English at UMKC for 20 years. And when I was originally trained, before I was at UMKC, anytime we would do a paper that was, oh, for example, persuasive, where maybe there are three or four different points of view that could be addressed in a paper. You know, for example, a child custody case. Should the child go with the mom? Should it go with the dad? Should there be a split arrangement? What if mom and dad are both unfit? Should the kid go with grandma? Should the kid go with the older sister who's 30 and married and well-established and a good member of the community? It's just kind of easy to see how an issue could have four, five, six sides. And what I found is, is that people don't naturally do that. People latch on to one point of view and they're just like bulldogs. They, they just grip that bone and they just run with it. Essentially, bias. yeah, they hang around with the people who think they do the way they do, and then when they are faced uh, or in a situation, whether it's Thanksgiving dinner or you know at a bar, then what happens? They haven't thought through what they believe, and then they become angry, and it just it's it's not healthy. This was the real dilemma I found teaching English because I, I grew up in a family that liked to discuss things, and of course we have our biases. Um, I'd like to think that at this point in my life, I'm aware of what they are, and I see a bunch of the weaknesses in my own sets of beliefs. Uh, I'm certainly not perfect, and I'm definitely not the smartest person, and I could be wrong. I guess sometimes I'm just floored that other people don't do that, but then I think at the same token, I was lucky. I grew up in a family that valued looking at things from two, three, four, five points of view, and then everything in my education reinforced that. When I was trained to great essays, when I was a graduate student at Marquette, they said, we are looking for students to fairly represent two, three, four points of view. And don't bring in any straw man arguments, bring in the best arguments of the opposing side. Uh, treat them with real respect. There are people behind those arguments. Treat those people with real respect. I, I don't know. I guess I, I forget how lucky I am that I was trained that way, and, and I'm just aware that I make mistakes all the time. We all do. And yeah. that's okay because that's when the learning takes place. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, I guess that kind of answered, at least it started to answer one of the questions I was thinking of, which is how can debate benefit other people? But I feel like maybe we've addressed that. Um, let's give some people some really practical advice. Let's start with debate. Um, I'd love to relate debate to negotiation. Um, in negotiation, a lot of really ethical authors like Stephen R. Covey of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People said that we should aim for a win-win or a no deal. That is, we should try to figure out a way for both people to win something. Um, but I guess my question is, in debate, are we stuck with win-lose or lose-win where there's just a winner and a loser? Is that just how it is or, or how can we do this? Well, let's, let's get right to the point. Debate in high school, you're going to have a winner and a loser. That's just the way it works out so that you can advance to the next step. But in life, and that's what we're trying to teach here, it's win-win. Because even if you walk away and you feel like you've lost, you've gained something because you recognize you've learned something you didn't know ahead of time. Mm. And I think it's always win-win. Now, people, their perception might be, I was, you know, I really did really well in that debate. And they may have been... Uh, mean and hateful, or they may have called names. And I think it was Socrates, or at least they attribute it to him. You know, once you, and I'm paraphrasing, once you make it personal, uh, then the other person wins. And I think that's a really good rule to follow in your homes. It's a great, it's, I use it in my classroom. You know, they can, they can debate all they want, but the moment they say, well, you're an idiot they lose. Then it's over. Then it's over. Because that's an ad hominem. That's right. You know, I, I could say, hey, I think that we should buy a sports, a sports car. And then my, my friends could say, you're an idiot, without addressing any of the arguments. Can you afford a sports car? Is it safe to drive a sports car? Uh, I live in northern Alaska. It snows. It will, like, melt the, it will wreck the sports car, etc. And it signals to the person you're talking to that they aren't studied 
on the topic in which you're discussing. And a good debater is going to go, hey, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this and move on. Okay, so if I try to go for the kill move with a sledgehammer and call the other person an idiot, in a way, I'm really just surrendering the debate. Correct. Okay, okay. Uh, another principle of negotiation that Stephen R. Covey has, Seven Habits, is that we should embrace the highest standards of honesty and integrity. Um, and not everybody does that. I mean, I think we've all been ripped off by somebody in our life. But his standard is we should always tell the truth. And that if we get caught in a lie, we are blowing the whole thing. What are your thoughts on that? I agree 100%. I think we tend to, with the, in this political correct society, we tend to get away from being honest because we're afraid we're going to hurt someone's feelings. But we also take from them, uh, take away from them, I guess I should say, the opportunity to learn. And I think that's very, very dangerous. So being honest is really the way to go unless whatever you're talking about is not of any significance. You just don't want to hurt their feelings. I mean, gotcha. Like if I say, does this red shirt make me look good? And you're thinking, no, it makes you look awful. And uh, so then you say, hey, how about we get a pizza? You just sort of avoid the whole conversation. Well, I'm hoping that if somebody asks me, we're really good friends. And instead of letting somebody go out wearing red and they look terrible, I would probably say, because I am a good friend, uh -huh. that maybe you should wear blue. Okay. Oh, it's better with your eyes. Okay. Okay. So it's there's almost no situation in which we should lie, essentially. I, I think that's probably Maybe some true. extreme situation, like if the Nazis show up and it's World <laughs> War II and, and uh, the Nazis are like, uh, you know, are the Americans in the basement because we want to shoot them? You know, then you might say, no, I think they went down the street, you know, but that's really about... That's the most extreme example I can think of. Right. If you're going to lie to save somebody's life, you probably should lie to save somebody's, somebody's life. life. But other than that, like 99.9% .9 of the time, we don't want to lie. Right. I, I don't think you gain anything unless you're being, you want to deliberately be mean. Okay. I don't think you gain anything. Okay. So it's a terrible debate strategy to lie. Oh, absolutely. Okay. okay. Now there's another negotiation belief that the person with the most information tends to win the debate. What are, what are your thoughts on that? It's not true, because they could have faulty information. Um, the one with the most information doesn't mean it's the best information. Mm. So, you know, in a debate class or in a debate round, there are, there's a lot of information young people use that's faulty. And unless the other team recognizes that, they win with faulty information. And that's not a good debate. That is... Uh, probably the, the worst scenario that I've ever seen as a judge is I have to give the win to people who blatantly lie. Mm. And I don't like that. And I think when kids get used to seeing they can do that, well, they take that into their professions, and that could be a politician or it could be you know a boss of some kind. And if they feel like they can get by with it, uh, I think, again, that's very dangerous. Should I, should I amend that? so-called truism or standard to say the person with the most accurate information tends to win? Well, it depends on how they express themselves. Um, if they have accurate information but they can't uh, articulate it, it, yes, then it's, it's, it's a waste. Gotcha. Gotcha. But if you had a highly articulate person mm -hmm. using accurate information mm -hmm. and this person is doing their best to be honest... Mm -hmm. Do you see any flaws with that? I do, because unless you're in a round where somebody's going to judge you, then if the other person isn't well-rounded enough on whatever the topic is, they're not going to recognize that you know what you're talking about. They're going to see that you're um, adding bias. Okay, okay. Now, if everybody has the same information, and then that takes away the question, then a debate would be fair. I think these points you're bringing up are excellent because whenever I've tried to teach negotiation to high school students, I've always had to tell people that, okay, I've got these five principles or standards that I'm trying to teach, but they don't necessarily always work. You, yeah. could, you could come in with the best argument. Mm -hmm. It could be a win for both people. Mm -hmm. Everybody could benefit in the short term, the medium term, and the long term, and we could all get rich. 
and then we could give away money to charity. And you're still going to run into people who they're just not going to be convinced. So you just, just because you're using all the right methods doesn't mean it's always going to work. I, I just had to tell people that it just, you know, it's not always going to work. Well, there are famous trials that we won't discuss because I'll take us somewhere else <laughs> where the information, at least for most people who were observing, was accurate and the verdict ended up being wrong. Correct. And then maybe corrected later. Correct. Okay. Okay. Ah, uh, okay. Then there's also this so-called standard or truism that the person who cares the least tends to win a negotiation because they have walkaway power. Um, I don't know if that's true in debate. Maybe it's true in both negotiation and debate. You could just tell me what you think. The person who cares the least has walkaway power. You know, if I'm trying to sell you a car and you just flat out don't care, you know, if the price isn't right, you can just walk away. Sure. Thoughts? Um, I think in that situation, you're absolutely right. The person who cares the least. I mean, if it's, if it's something like that where you don't care enough to make it a big deal, then you probably should walk away. Uh-huh. Because if you don't have passion for whatever it is you're doing... You should walk away. You should probably walk away. Okay. 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 Um, then I guess the last one I can... Well, actually, let me ask this. Suppose someone wanted to construct an outstanding argument for something. Is there a format or a pattern or a template that a person should use? You know something? You just need to be confident and know what you're talking about. There's no template because that takes away the personality of the person delivering the message. And while some people prefer one style, there, there are plenty of them, but as long as you know what you're talking about, I think you're in good shape. Okay, and that implies that we're also being honest about what we're talking Absolutely. about. Okay, okay. So let's just do a few examples just to see if we can help people out. Suppose a 17-year-old girl has a midnight curfew. She wants to stay up till 1 a.m. If you were her, how would you construct your argument? I want to stay out till 1. Okay, well, I was that girl. And I think that that argument should never happen with parents. I think parents say, look, after 1 o'clock, so I'm switching this on you, Tim. Yeah. After 1 o'clock, uh, nothing's open. You can only get yourself into trouble after one o'clock. Uh -huh. So the discussion is now over. <laughs> so I know if I was presenting uh, my plea to my parents when I was 17, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go anywhere. Okay. It would have been over. Okay. And I think that's the way it should be. So that one's just dead in its tracks, it basically. It's dead in its tracks. Okay. I mean, okay. if you can manipulate your parents at 17, that's the problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, what if the girl is doing volunteer work? I mean, what if she's doing something that's extremely generous for other people? What if she's, I don't know, running a retreat or something like that? You mean at like a camp? Yeah. Well, then that's a totally different story. Okay. I mean, if she, her curfew is probably not even one o'clock, it's probably she spends the night. Okay. And if parenting, you hope that when you parent that you've given them the foundation that they're not going to lie to you, they're not going to do something in your absence, and at that point, you know, you have to let them do what they're going to do. Okay, so the only way that you'd let this happen would be is the kid would have to have an extremely good reason. Right, and it would have to, I'd have to see, you know, who sanctioned it, and okay. if it's a legit... Are they safe? Are they physically are they, exactly. safe? Exactly, and, and you know, kids lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you, can't, you probably should check into the... Well, and they're under 18, so the camp should be asking for a parental signature anyway. The thing I'm grateful about human nature is that although kids lie, they all grow out of it, and that adults tend to be honest as the day is long. <laughs> the you get, the more honest you get. That's the thing that I just really appreciate about human nature <laughs> completely. Okay, here's the second one for you. Uh, for debate or for negotiation, however you want to phrase it, an employee at a store called Bullseye is making, I don't know, $12 or $13 an hour. Uh, that's what this person has made for two years now. Um, and this person, she would like a 2 to $4 an hour raise. And uh, her key argument is, well, I've been here for two years. And uh, the boss is just looking at her. The boss could be male, could be female. Is just looking at her and just not, not terribly thrilled with that argument, um, how should she go about asking for a 2 to $4 an hour raise well, up from 12 
Well, if she thinks that she deserves it, she probably needs to outline everything that she's done uh, for the company, or um, maybe she works a lot of overtime, and she feels like she's earned the opportunity to ask for an increase because, well, she's done the, done the job, she's gone beyond the call of duty, and it's time. I think it's a fair request of any boss. Now, if they say no, she's in a position to go, well, somebody else will you know, appreciate my talents, or you know, hang in there. Gotcha. She could either hang in there or she could start looking. Exactly. Okay, okay. Um, now, let's say, I'm going to change the scenario ever so slightly. Let's say the unemployment rate nationally is 13%, which is the worst since 1939. How does that change how she should ask? It doesn't. If you're doing a really good job and the economy is... Bad. Bad. And, but there's some, it depends. Now, if she was making... Um, masks or ventilators mm. and she had been doing working for GM for years and she was a really good employee and she never was laid off or anything because in our economy right now with the pandemic people didn't do the exact job they had but they just had to switch over to help uh, the medical world so I don't think it changes I don't think it changes at all she's okay. still she's still the same person doing the same job okay okay so now, she the answer could be different because of the economy but at least the, the employer has, has this thought, hmm, she likes being here, she's dedicated, if things get better, I might promote her. Right. The boss might be thinking, well, we absolutely can't afford that now, we're barely hanging on, but when things get better, I'm going to make sure that she gets rewarded Correct. for these things. Okay. Um, let me try a slightly different scenario. Now let's say the unemployment rate is only 3%, which is the best since at least 1969. Um, it's the best maybe since 1925, middle of the roaring 20s. So, you know, employers are just craving workers. Does that change how she should ask or anything like that? Oh, I think so. And now I think she has a little bit of leverage. Uh, she can go to her employer and say, hey, you know, I really could use a raise. I'm getting ready to go off to college. I'm going to need a little extra money. And he or she may say, well, you know, we can't do that right now. Well, the employer at this point has to weigh the possibility of she's going to find a job someplace else, and she's a good employee. Do I really want to retrain somebody that may not be as good? So I think... I think she would use it at, uh, to her advantage, of course. Would you say that if you were her out loud? Well, uh, I'm sorry to hear that you don't want to give me a raise. I, this forces me to go looking. No, I think um, probably I would say, okay, well, I just wanted to make sure that I, I approached you with this. And if you say that there's not going to be an opportunity in the next few months, um, then that makes me do some other thinking. And, you know, I might say just to let them know that I, I do need to leave. I, if, if all possible, I'll stay. But right now, I, I really probably will look. Yeah. I, do you because we're back to the honesty thing. We are. Do you think the boss in that situation would, of course, realize this is an employee's market? I hope. <laughs> I do, too. I, I would think they would have to just be absolutely oblivious to life on Earth if they were unaware that unemployment was 3% and that was an employee's market. I, I think that, that would have to be in the back of their mind. They would have to be thinking, we, we need to retain good employees. Right, because would you want, want to work for somebody who doesn't value good employees? The answer to that would be no, and that would be yet another reason to go look for another job. Very true. Very true. Okay. So here's a different scenario. So there's an engaged couple and they are very much in love. And the last three movies they have seen were romantic comedies. But one of them really likes action shoot 'em up movies. And uh, they, this person just wants to see Die Hard 9, Die Till You're Dead. And the other person says, no, I'd kind of like to see when Sally met Harry again. Um, and... So they're in this situation where they never see the action movie. They always see the romantic comedy. Um, how do you push to see the action movie? Well, you first have to ask yourself, does the other person really care about what I enjoy? 
And if your answer is really no, then you probably really should think the relationship altogether. Because if they're not going to make a sacrifice uh -huh. for you, then why would you want to be in that relationship anyway? What? You're, we're going to break up? We're going to end our engagement over Die Hard 9? Uh, yes, actually, yes. Okay. Uh, I think there has to I mean, as I understand the question, the, we'll say the girl had wanted to see three um, romantic comedies. Uh -huh. And the guy said, hey, look, I've gone to three romantic comedies, which I think is pretty good for a guy to say <laughs> that. Uh, and, and he goes, I want to see Die Hard now. I think if she understands that he has um, shown her that he wants, to, he wants to be with her, that she should show, maybe with her eyes closed or, or, with, <laughs> or with the mask, but she should go see Die Hard. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Because, really, I guess what we're getting at is, do these two people really respect uh, the other person enough to, you know, occasionally just honor some of their activities? Right. And negotiation in a, a relationship is, is a totally different animal. Uh, you know, there are some things that you should do just because you love them. That's right. That's right. Well, and then also, too, I just think in a relationship, whether it's marriage or anything else, there's actually always about 3,000 separate issues going on at the same time. Right. So it's not just the movie. It's also the dog and uh, the kids. And, and uh, the hill you want to die on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And so, yeah, there's there's just, uh, there's 3,000 things in the background. Correct. So, so okay, that one's a little bit complicated. Uh, do you have a scenario or an example that, that you could roll out? Just as, because I, I came up with a few. Do you have one that just sort of comes to your mind? Well, I think as an employer, one thing that we haven't talked about you can't really go into negotiations if your employer doesn't have your back to begin with. Mm. And, you know, that's important today. Uh, I don't, I, well, I guess I do since I'm thinking about bringing it up. But what's happening in our society right now is kind of a reverse discrimination. And if we're against discrimination, it should be against discrimination of all kinds. And we have to be mindful that everybody's important, every job is important, and people make mistakes. However, I think it's unfair for employers for, oh, to be politically correct, or, you know, to meet a quota, to pick or choose people based on all the wrong um, characteristics. Characteristics. Like so I'm hearing meritocracy. You just would like to see a meritocracy. Of course. It makes us all better. Okay. Okay. Um, what are some fair techniques to use in a debate? Techniques? Yeah. I techniques, strategies, tactics, techniques. I, well, I'm not I, sure the right word. Okay. I think eye contact is very important. I think sincerity is important. Okay. Passion is important. Knowledge is important. Uh-huh. Um, there's not really a good technique because like anything else, you know, you have, like in the art world, you might have Warhol who has a very different technique than, um, oh, what do I want to say? I don't know, Picasso, a Van Gogh. And, uh, yeah, or Rockwell even. Yeah. And so I think to say, now there are rules you have to follow. That's very different than technique. I think you just, like any discussion, any argument, any debate, you need to know what you're talking about, be able to uh, articulate all of it, and make sure you can support it. Okay, okay. Uh, let me flip it around. Are there anything, any behaviors, any traits that we should just absolutely avoid in a debate? Calling names. Okay. I think that's, I think that's what you should avoid. Everything else... You know, as long as you've walked in with some knowledge and some confidence, uh, I think everything everything goes. Just don't start calling names. That's a reflection on the person calling names, not on the debate. Okay. Suppose a person is, this, is in a situation where they feel ripped off. Like, I don't know, they went to the pizza store or the running store, and they just feel like, you know, I think I got conned. I think I got ripped off. They, uh, they promised me 40 minutes in the nail salon and they gave me 28 minutes. Uh, just, I, I'm not quite sure, but just any sort of a situation where a person feels conned or ripped off. How do we get restitution? I think the word isn't restitution. I think it's tuition. I think you just use your tool. I mean, it's, it's 
something we pay to not make the, the mistake again. Okay. So. Oh, you got tuition. Uh, you just uh, you just bought a class at the School of Hard Knocks. Right. Okay. Right. So if I got ripped off, I don't know at you know the pizza joint. Mm-hmm or by the bad politician, or just by the, the friend who I thought was a friend, and I just I just screwed up and it cost me $100, then I, maybe I just need to listen to that song, Won't Get Fooled Again. Correct. I, now, that's very difficult because you're going to be angry, you're going to be impulsive, and then you're probably going to say something you'll regret, which is back to the debate again. You lose if you do that. So I would, I would try, and I try, because I'm not good at it, but I will back away, and then once I've processed a little more, I might say, oh, it's not worth it, I'm going to walk away, mm. or take it as tuition. I just paid tuition to learn a skill that uh, I, will, I will not make that mistake again, or I will not visit that salon again. I think it's important that we make those judgments so that we learn from our bad experiences. Okay. That's that's just, well, sad. I think Dave Ramsey calls that a stupid tax. Like, uh, maybe I did something stupid, and then I paid extra money. Like, maybe I was speeding when I shouldn't have been. I, I was just, like, way over the limit, and then I pay a $100 ticket. But then there's also situations where, well, no, I, I went to the bad restaurant, and they gave me substandard food, and then when I complained about it, they said, tough rocks. Either way, it's a stupid tax. Right. Whether it's my fault or their fault, uh, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. Okay. Right. And, okay. and you don't go back, and that's probably the worst thing that can happen. And usually what happens when we have those experiences, we're going to tell someone. And the last thing a restaurant needs right. is for you know somebody to talk about how bad the food was. And so usually restaurants or any good company is going to uh, take on the slogan, the customer's right. Absolutely. Hence the saying, the customer's always right. I guess we're back to honesty because if I'm, I don't know, a storage company and I rip people off, well, then reputation, word of mouth. Uh, it can work in my favor in other situations, but it's going to sink me right here. Correct. We're just back to honesty. Mm-hmm. Okay, what is something about debate that people just don't know? Mm, I think people... I grew up in a, in a household like you where we would debate at high volume. And the listening part is the most difficult so I think when people debate, they don't realize they should listen. Mm. Because when we listen, well, we can effectively debate, but we feel like our views are right. Therefore, you can't really hear what everybody else is saying. And sometimes, ironically, you're arguing about, about the very same thing. And then somebody <laughs> says, you're saying the very same thing. And so I think listening is, when you, when you hear the word debate, you, you hear talking, arguing, but what you don't hear in the word debate is listening. That's extremely well said. That's really good. I remember ah, being at an event one time and the speaker was praising somebody in the audience and just saying, uh, you know, he's living proof of why we have two ears and one mouth because he listens a lot more than he speaks. And I think that used to be a cliche. I think we should bring it back and make that a cliche again so that people can absorb that. Um, okay, let's shift over into literature. You know, I, I just have a pet theory on, on reading, and it's this. A lot of people will say they just don't like to read. And yet, what I've noticed is books like The Hunger Games, The Lord of the Rings, and Dune will sell tens of millions of copies. Seven Habits pops up in Amazon's top 100 list all the time, and it was published 30 years ago. I bet if you checked Dune right now or Lord of the Rings... I bet they're in the top 10,000 sellers out of 14 million books. It's been years and years since they were published, like 50 years since Dune was published. People are still reading this stuff. Anna Karenina, Crime and Punishment, Gone with the Wind, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. People just love these books. And so has the book ever changed your life? I think that's dangerous if a book can change your life. I know I use that word a lot, dangerous, but I think we need to, back to the critical thinking, uh, I love Wuthering Heights, and it's a romantic story, and I love 
uh, there's a line in there about whatever Heathcliff's soul's made of, it's made of the very same thing. I, that, that meant something to me, I can quote it, but I don't think I can say that any book has changed my life because we should all be comfortable in our own skins. It maybe causes us to think, mm. but to change, mm, that's, that's kind of risky. A little too dramatic to Correct. say that a book changed, changed. my life. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it will make us think. So I'm, I'm hearing maybe slight influence, like turn me one degree, not, sure. not 180 degrees. Sure, I think that's fair because you might read another book that might change right back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, but, but that's, and that's from my debate background. You, the more you learn, the more you need to learn. And the answers uh, aren't always obvious. But you know something? We have to be comfortable in our own skin. And the moment we are not, we need to get ourselves as closely back to it as, as, as possible. Because at some point, you know, that book's not going to be there to open when you are trying to talk yourself out of a ticket, even though you might be guilty. Um, or that book's not going to be there when you're having a long discussion with your child. You need to be able to know what you think based on experience, which is sometimes better than a book, and then maybe that book that you read will confirm what you've always believed. Okay. Is there a book that you really love that you wish more people would read? Um, I, I love Wuthering Heights, so that and anything Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I think he his vocabulary, his style is incredible, the mysteries. Uh, no, I don't think I could pick any one book because I love so many of them, and that really wouldn't be fair. Um, Twilight Zone short stories are amazing, and if you know you don't want to read, of course you can watch the series because they allow you to also think. Okay. And okay. there's a great one, as a matter of fact, if you don't mind me saying this, uh, it's called Enough Time at Last, and it's with Burgess Meredith, who was Rocky's trainer. And he was also, I think, what, the Penguin and Batman. Yeah. Anyway, he's, the, he's a young guy who works at a bank, and he reads all the time. And his wife tears out all the pages out of his books. <laughs> and, I mean, there's just a lot of mean people, and he wants to talk to people about reading. Well, fast forward, there's an atomic bomb, and this whole city is destroyed, but he happened to be reading a book in the vault in the bank. <laughs> and so, you know, he goes out there and he's just upset because everybody he knows is gone until, you know, he puts on his glasses and he walks over to the library and he has all this, all these books. And he is just thinking, oh, time enough at last. And as he reaches for the book, his glasses fall and break. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what a nightmare. First, you're thinking, oh, he's saved because he's in the vault. Of course, everybody else on Earth is wiped out. But then he's happy because the library is open. But then he gets there and he breaks his one and only pair of glasses. That's right. That's pretty dark. It is dark. It is dark. But maybe it's a lesson to learn that you shouldn't be, you know, one-dimensional. Are you attracted to darker literature? No, I don't think so. Um, I just have an appreciation for... Uh, Twilight Zone because it's well written. Um, let's see. I I love like I said I love mysteries. Agatha Christie. That, and right now I'm loving Anthony Horowitz. Oh, who is Anthony Horowitz? He is a mystery writer. Actually, he writes children's books, and he kind of ventured out and started writing um, mysteries for adults. And I have just really enjoyed it lately. So I think. I think as I age, my it's like wine. You know, you start looking for the better books. Okay, I think that's well said. Um, let me ask this: uh, What do you make of my theory that people secretly love to read? Because all these people who say, "Oh, I don't like to read," they're reading articles, they're reading the news, they're reading nonfiction. I know one kid who said, "Oh, I don't like to read," except that he got into small motors. And then he wanted to repair small motors. So then pretty soon he's got all kinds of manuals and books that he is pouring over and pouring over and pouring over. And that would probably kill me to have to read one of these things. And he just loved it. Right. Just absolutely loved it. I, what do you make of my, or am I wrong? When, when people say I don't like to, to read, I don't believe them. 
but but I would like your thoughts on that. I think it's like everything else. You have to have a passion for something. So if you love mechanics or you love cooking or you you know adore mysteries, I think you should read what you enjoy. Uh, I'm not a big fan of book clubs because they're chosen for you. Right. And if I'm going to read something um, leisurely, I want it to be something that I'm going to sit down and enjoy. Okay. Well, okay. Then this sort of makes me want to ask a little bit about teaching and a little bit about education. because So I taught college English and, uh, you know, I, I would pick the books. And like, let's say I want people to read Gatsby or Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison or Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, which is just the world's greatest book in my opinion. Um, Then I'm picking these books, but then maybe the students don't want to read them. And am I turning them off by selecting the wrong books? Absolutely not. Uh, if If you remember, I said leisure. If you're going to read and going to enjoy it, you're going to choose books that you love. Now, when you show young people uh, different genres, and you are probably going to find out that whether they admit it or not, not all of the books that you choose, but one of them, then you've succeeded. Okay. So I could get a kid, and maybe this kid is only interested in soccer. And so I have them read four or five books and 20 short stories, and maybe just one of them will click. Correct. Okay, okay. Could the schools do a better job, or at least some schools do a better job of getting kids hooked on reading? Because there are certainly plenty of people who say they don't like reading. We could all do a better job uh, in trying to get people to read. You know, the newspaper, I think they say, is at a fifth grade level. Uh Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I want to say that kids don't read today because they're so busy playing video games. But I know there are a lot of people my age, uh, in grade school obviously, where they didn't read either. We didn't have those distractions. So sometimes it might be because they have uh, dyslexia and it hasn't been identified yet or mm-hmm. diagnosed yet. Uh, it might be because uh, they have migraines and they have to get that taken care of. Um, I don't believe everybody loves to read but I believe they love to read what they enjoy what they're what again whatever it is that they're passionate about gotcha gotcha well then how about the classics I, I personally believe the classics can deeply enrich a person's life on just a wide variety of levels maybe they could teach us about human nature maybe they could teach us about society maybe they're just here for pleasure and not here to educate. But I just feel like people would become better if they could just occasionally get hooked on Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. How could we better get people hooked on some of the classics? Are you talking about in a classroom or in just society? Let's say in society. Well, I think we've missed opportunities when uh, we've had movies that have been remade uh, I think 10 Things I Hate About You yeah. is a Shakespeare Yeah, it game. is. Yeah, Taming of the Shrew. Correct. And I think when we make those connections, and I try to do that with my seniors in high school, uh, I say, oh, did you, did you want to read Taming of the Shrew? No. Well, didn't you see 10 Things I Hate About You? That was a great movie. Oh, well, then you watch Shakespeare. And I, I think we, we lack in making those connections And Macbeth is a perfect example of what's going on in our world today. Mm. You know, it's a struggle between morality and power. And I really believe that if you set it up correctly, kids are going to appreciate it if you can bring it home. And that's the beauty of being a teacher. Now, people in the world are getting so fed up with journalism that reading becomes a waste of time because you don't know what to believe. And then that's all right back to, you know, you have to do your research, you have to critical think, and that's why if I can do another plug for debate, it's such a good skill. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you don't know what's true, then you're forced back into the position of, like you said, now I have to look at this from two angles, three angles, five angles. And it's Um, okay to say in a discussion, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That is perfectly fine. Yeah. That is what they first taught us when I started to teach when I was 22 at Marquette. 
uh, we were all very nervous as incoming graduate school teachers, just incredibly nervous because our students were going to be 18. And for crying out loud, I mean, just, you know, we're 22. I mean, people on our soccer team or whatever were 18. You know, some of our younger brothers and sisters were 18 and they were more mature than we were. Uh, there was just so many reasons to be afraid. And finally, after about two days of instruction, they gave us a whopping nine days of instruction before they gave us college students to teach. Um, of course, now a cool thing was they paid us $500 for these two weeks. And, and we thought this is terrible. We have to go to this boring teacher training and they're only paying us $500. I, we just felt so ripped off. Now, the funny thing about this is, is of course, people go to ed school across the United States, and they pay thousands upon thousands of dollars to basically be in the situation that I was getting paid for. And I was complaining about it because yeah. it was that stupid. But in any case, um, after about three days of training, somebody just very nervously asked what we were all thinking, which is, what if a student asks us something and we don't know the answer? And this was before Google, so we couldn't come up with like a quick, sloppy, incorrect answer from the first stupid website that we would find. The instructor just said, just say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah, just say, I don't know. Let's go look it up together. And it was beautiful. It was just beautiful and it was very freeing as an instructor. And, and just for the last 30 years, I've often said to students, I don't know, let's see if we can find out. And ironically, on class evaluation forms, they marked me down as confident. And I'm thinking, I'm saying, I don't know, and you're marking me down as confidence. Yeah, I'm confident, I don't know. <laughs> so. Which being honest is back to that. Yeah, getting back to honesty. Okay, so uh, let's see. Now, suppose a 17-year-old came to you and this person is really bright, and they said, um, I'd like you to write for me a list of maybe five or 10 books that I should read over the next year. What would you recommend? Well, first I'd say, what do you, what's your interest? What do you like? Okay. Suppose and, this person says classic literature. Oh, okay. That's easy then. I would say, first of all, we should get to Shakespeare. It could be Macbeth. And then if you're going to do that, do the Taming of the Shrew. So a comedy and also a tragedy. And then, you know, Charles Dickens would be a great person. I mean, a great author to follow. Yeah. Uh, you know, Oliver, the movie was based uh, on his writing and... That story is, well, it's pertinent today. Does it matter which Charles Dickens, or would you say pick the one that appeals to you the most? Pick or? the one that appeals to you okay. the most. It's still a classic and it's still a good writer. Uh, but then, of course, Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. I would definitely encourage them to read one short story. And I don't know that I'd choose one, but if they'd ask, probably... Uh, oh, I don't know. The Telltale Heart's probably the most popular, and it's not as bloody as some of the others. Um, after that, you know, I love Emily Bronte. I, I mentioned that earlier. Uh, she wrote Wuthering Heights. And then I think maybe get into some classic uh, poetry that that might be something that they might enjoy. And it could be, oh, I don't know. It could be Emily Dickinson. It could be, there's so many great ones. I just trying to think of well who, let me ask Walt about, Whitman would be hmm. wonderful let me ask about poetry does it matter if I start with poems that are easy to understand or if I start with poems that are borderline impossible to understand well I would go with whatever you want okay and I think if you want the challenge then you know go for it if not go for the easy because the easy are just as good as the difficult they have different messages. Okay. Different eras, you know. You know, I think the classics can be defined in so many ways. I mean, now books that I read in grade school are classics. So, and they were relatively new, you know. So, like the Outsiders. Yeah. So you have a whole you have a whole library uh, full of books or the internet that, um, no matter what your passion is, back to that word. There's a book there for you. That's awesome. That's just awesome. What is something about the joys of literature that you think people may not know? They're written by real people with real experiences hmm. that you can. everybody can relate. Um, a lot of them are timeless. 
And I think when we hear the word classic, we all of a sudden think, oh, that's, I can't do that. That, I, I have no idea what. Too hard to read, too lofty. Uh, right, it might have a, uh, like Shakespeare, you know, people are afraid of Shakespeare. But when you break it down, you know, it's pretty easy. I just, I wonder, people say they're afraid of Shakespeare. I used to go to Shakespeare in the park here in Kansas City, and they would just have this vast audience space that was, I don't know, maybe the size of a football field. Right. And uh, they would put on 30 performances over a month. And no matter what night you went, there was barely any room. Right. Uh, it was just, baskets and... Yeah, it was just <laughs> packed to the rafters. Right. Every single time, 30 performances in a row about the size of a football field mm -hmm. and then people are saying things like oh i don't like shakespeare i don't understand shakespeare i i'm thinking i think i figured out why shakespeare is still around i mean shakespeare really really appeals to people here it is 400 years later and people are still getting sucked in the shit because you would look around and it would be every type of person imaginable right and because there is something for everybody and like i said the problem's he experienced and he also, you know, wrote about, I guess, are the very same things that we deal with today. They are universals. Yes. Yeah. So maybe literature just really shows us what it means to be human on a very deep level. Correct. Very profound level. Okay. You are a lifelong teacher and an excellent teacher. And I have read, I don't know if the stat is accurate, that something like one out of four teachers leaves the field within four years. And I've taught for 30 years that I love it. I very much enjoy it. But there were various stages where I just asked myself, what am I doing? What am I doing here? Why don't I go get a job lifting bricks? Uh, why didn't I join the army? Why don't I become, I just, you know, I had so many other thoughts that have ran through my head. I love it. I'm happy. I teach. Why do you think that you've lasted for decades? Um, I think I've lasted because it's not a job, it's a vocation. Um, it's not something that you can measure because the satisfaction you get, uh, maybe with the exception of doctors and nurses, but the satisfaction you get from watching kids grow uh, is awesome. Wow. Okay. So... It's just not a quantifiable thing. I don't think so. I think you're not in teaching for the money. Okay. So when I think quantifiable, I think, I don't know, let's say I was managing a stock fund, like a mutual fund, and I could say, you know, over the last 10 years, we've gone up by 9% on average every single year. I mean, well, that's quantifiable. Mm -hmm. Now, if I kept losing money every single year, let's say the stock market keeps going up and I keep going down, then that might just be a huge indicator to leave. But, but teaching is non-quantifiable. Right. I mean, right. It's not. I mean, no matter if you're making $100,000 a year as a professor at, I don't know, KU, or I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea what they make, or you're making less at a smaller private school, uh, you're not in it for the money. If you were, then I think that would be a problem. I think, I think that would be a really a big problem because you do understand that uh, you're there for people, not for the money. Now, I think it's dangerous for people to be in the profession that failed in the real world mm. because they bring to the classroom a bitterness that is not healthy, and I think it happens at all levels of education, and, it's, and I'm going to do another plug for debate or critical thinking, we have to train our kids to understand that we need to listen to everyone, our teachers, but we still need to process. And, and just because somebody say it, says it doesn't make it so. Right, right. You know, I, I used to teach math, and I don't know, I, I felt like students appreciated this. Um, over the course of the day, I might be doing something like 500 possibly a thousand different mathematical operations. You're always adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing, doing exponentials, just all kinds of things. Well, every time somebody caught me making a mistake, I would give that person a Hershey's kiss. Because my feeling is if I'm doing, say, a thousand mathematical operations, if I make a mistake 1% of the time, that is 10 errors a day, 
And if I'm doing a five-step problem or a seven-step problem, and if I screw up on step number two and don't catch it, and then I'm on step number three, step number four, step number five, pretty soon you're way out there in the wilderness when you were trying to get to the city and you're just totally lost and then you're staring at the board and the students are staring at the board and nobody gets it except for that one shy kid at the back of the room who caught it way back on step two, who isn't saying anything because this kid is shy. So I would give kids a piece of chocolate every time they caught me in an error. And I, I just felt like that was a good way to go. Just, just say I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, they need to see that you're wrong. Yeah. Because that allows them to make mistakes. Yeah, okay. Um, nearly everybody has spent time in school, and yet I think the public can get fascinated by movies and books about school, is there something about teaching that people just don't know, even though everybody's been to school, everybody's seen a movie about school, everybody's watched a television show that was set in a school, or saturated with it, is there anything that people don't know? Mm, I, I still say it's, it's, not, it's not your classic job. It is, it is, um, gosh, if I can come up with the right word. It, it's something far more important than um, a nine-to-five job. It is, it's, it, it takes all of you, in other words, all of me, to, to be able to hope to be a good teacher. Because the moment you have to share yourself and it's difficult because we all have distractions in our lives, then something something or somebody loses. And so people in our society need to really learn to respect the education field. Uh, I think, and you might have to correct me on this, you know, why would a professional group, and I think the only professional group, and of course I'm talking about teaching, uh, why would they have to form a union? Hmm. You know, there's no other profession that I can think of. Like a doctor's union or a lawyer's right. union. Right. Accountant's right. union. Right. So Mutual it, fund manager's union. Right. Sorry. That's right. But we've allowed ourselves to uh, take on the, the union saying that we can't do that for ourselves. And hmm. we're the only professional group that I'm aware of that has a union. And sometimes... The unions don't speak for the, for the group. They speak for a, maybe a small, um, a small section. And that doesn't help anyone. Now, I think unions are necessary. I grew up in a family where uh, my father was in a union. He was in the printer's union. Uh, but I think in this particular situation, you know, we're all educated. And, and then we complain, well, nobody respects teachers. Well, sometimes we allow teachers in the field, like I said before, that didn't make it in the real world, so they're coming in to teach, and that gives the rest of us a bad name. Ah, okay, very powerful. Um, well, I have two more questions for you, and uh, this last question is maybe a little off the wall. Suppose you found out that your great-great-aunt, who passed away, she was over 100, left you $10 million after taxes. What would you do with the $10 million? You know, so this is a really easy question. I think I would use most of it, I would give away most of it. I think anything in excess is, is a problem, uh, especially if you haven't, you're not used to it. And that's when you start to have the power piece and not the morality piece. Mm. So if I'm going to exercise my power at that point, I would like to, you know, I think Planned Parenthood is a, an organization that people fled to. I would like to fled to a pro-life organization um, and, and give them the kind of money to do great things to counter Planned Parenthood. Uh, so most of my money would go to, uh, you know, Right to Life or something that's pro-life. I don't want, um, I'm happy with what I have now and I think if I change that significantly, I don't think I'd be happy anymore. Okay, gotcha. So you really don't, 
I guess, need some of the material things that you could buy with $10 million. You would rather just give it to worthy causes. Right, because, you know, when I was young and newly married, we'll say, you know, we, we had old cars and, you know, our, we had a very, 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 very small house and we had to work for everything. And there are days when my husband and I look at each other and go, those were the days. Huh? Those were the days. Uh, now, you know, we are, we are very blessed. And while it sounds great to have $10 million, I don't, I don't think it's great. I see people with a lot of money who make really bad choices and it, and it spoils the good things that they had. The thing that I just absolutely love about your mind, and I just want to draw this out for everybody, is that you are able to look at things from two, three, four points of view. I just think a lot of people, you know, you say, hey, $10 million, they might just look at it in one particular way. Um, you've just kind of outlined the good you can do with $10 million and also the destruction you can do with $10 million. And your mind just very naturally and easily looks at things from multiple angles. And I just nice. think that that's, that's just a wonderful trait. And I, I wish more people would live that out. When I was teaching college English, that was just hard to draw out of students with those essays, as I was saying. So I just want to really applaud you for that. Thank you. Okay. Well, my last question-ish is this. So let's just fast forward to you are 100 years old, and you are sitting on the front porch of your house, maybe, and your loving husband is holding your hand, and you are surrounded by your sons and, your, and their wives and grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren. And somebody says, Grandma-ish, what was good about your life? What are you happiest about? What do you say? Everything. Um, I think old age is a privilege, and not everybody gets that. So you just mentioned all the things that were important to me, my kids, my grandkids. Uh, that sounds like things went well. And... Um, I don't know, I think everything. I can't imagine, even the bad. Uh, it's out of all those bad times, and we all have them, that you, you learn the most and you appreciate the good so much more. That's a very comprehensive answer. That's beautiful. Thank you, Ish. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary, a podcast about people who, on the surface, appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface have many interesting things going on. Next episode in two days.